invite all of our kiddos, ages four through fourth grade, to follow Tori, our Christopher. She'll lead you into the parish hall for Children's Church, and you'll return again to worship with us at the offertory. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jason Michelli. Uh, thank you all for giving me your time and space here in this beautiful church. Uh, when Paul asked if I'd like to come preach at St. David of Wales, I thought, I love Great Britain. I can't wait to go. Uh, uh, needless to say, uh, and I asked Step, uh, like, if I do mess with Texas, what happens? Um, <laughs> And he wasn't able to answer me. So anyway, uh, it is good to be here. Um, I'm not Episcopalian, and the fact that I'm here shows you uh, that uh, the reach of your rector, Paul, uh, goes well beyond your own particular tradition, uh, that he is wise and thoughtful um, and, and, and a good leader. And so I, I hope you appreciate him as much as I do. Uh, would you all pray with me? Gracious and almighty God, according to your promise, speak your living word to us. And to that end, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people say, now, as a United Methodist, I assume uh, Episcopalians think it's my job to deploy my expensive seminary education in order to explain to you how Jesus doesn't really mean what it sounds like Jesus so clearly says in his Sermon on the Mount. Or rather, you want me to tell you what Jesus uh, would have said had Jesus enjoyed the advantage of a Master of Divinity degree like mine. But instead of me protecting you from Jesus, how about we allow the enormity of the Lord's demand to, to, to sit with us for a brief moment? Don't you dare drop a dime in the offering plate if someone in your life has got a righteous grievance against you. Does that sting? Anyone? Don't bother signing up to serve the poor or, or study in steps, small group, or, or teach children Sunday school. There is no merit to it at all. If you have let fester any of the wounds you have inflicted. Ouch. When you come to the table, at uh, which I am the host, and if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave. And go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and only then come and receive. Look, uh, Father Paul can attest, last fall, I was officially a teacher of preaching at Duke Divinity School, which means I'm a competent enough con artist to fool people into thinking I know what I'm doing. <laughs> now, as a preacher, I know this much. 
This is not a savvy way to begin a sermon. Jesus is still at the top of his Sermon on the Mount. You've got to charm your hearers into listening, especially when, like Jesus, you're a guest preacher. You can't wallop them straight out of the gate. I don't know why Jesus would start out by laying such a a heavy law on nice, well-behaved people like you. But I do suspect that Jesus may have been thinking about King Saul when he said it. Your children probably don't learn this story in godly play. In the first book of Samuel, the Lord summons King Saul to strike down the Amalekites because the city had refused to welcome the refugees that God had delivered from suffering in Egypt. And the word of the Lord comes through the prophet Samuel to Saul, go and strike down Amalek and offer up as a sacrifice of praise all that they possess. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And King Saul mobilizes his troops. And he defeats the Amalekites east of Egypt, yet he does not obey the Lord's orders. He takes the king of the Amalekites alive, along with the best of the city's sheep and oxen and fatted calves. The next morning... The prophet Samuel arrives at the Israelites' camp. He finds King Saul in the midst of of worship. What have you been doing? Samuel asks Saul. I've just been carrying out the commandments of God, Saul answers. Really? If you've been carrying out the commands of God, replies Samuel, what is the meaning of of the bleeding of the lambs and the lowing of the cattle, which I am hearing now? I decided to spare some of them. Says King Saul. I decided. And then the prophet brings down the the hammer of the law, and, and not just on Saul. Hath the Lord as great delight in sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey the Lord is better than worship, and to heed to his commands is more pleasing than any offered gift. In other words, To put self-imposed limits on the law is to disobey the law. To think our acts of devotion and worship can make up for our failures to follow the commands fully only negates those acts of devotion and worship. Behold, to obey the Lord is better than worship. I mean, if I had to choose between the Lord's command to Saul or the law that Christ lays down today... I'd start sharpening my sword. According to the 23rd thesis of the Heidelberg Disputation, the law always accuses. Lex, semper, accusa. And whenever Protestants put something in the Latin, you know it's important. (laughs) The law always accuses. Like Samuel to Saul, God's first word, the law, it never comes to you and finds you actually following it. Obeying it to the full. Lex semper accusat. The law always accuses. I've been a preacher for 23 years, and in all of that time, I've only ever threatened to withhold the sacrament from a parishioner on a, a few occasions. One occurred in my second parish. A matriarch of the church and the chair of the local Democratic Party, she continually railed in her horse smoker's voice against an interracial marriage I had performed in the parish. In keeping with the Lord's command in Matthew, I confronted her about her racism. I invited her to repent. 
I encouraged her to seek reconciliation with the couple. And because I was a relatively new pastor, I had not yet learned uh, that the unspoken goal of ordained ministry is to be what Stanley Harewell calls a quivering mass of availability and acquiescence. I didn't know that, so I, I told June that I would no longer serve her the Eucharist if she stubbornly insisted on receiving it unfaithfully. You can't do that. I'm in charge of the altar guild. She laughed a raspy laugh. And she stopped her raspy laughing when she realized I was serious. Yes, I, I can do that. And I will, I said. Exactly what do you think my job is here? I'm not a maitre d' or a, a cruise ship director. I'm responsible for your salvation. And she rolled her eyes and snarled sarcastically. Aren't you, Mr. High and Mighty, she said. Just who the blank do you think you are? I'm the preacher, I said. Yeah, she said. Yeah, and haven't you, preacher, stood in the pulpit and shared about your own unreconciled relationship with your father? Maybe I was absent the Sunday you stopped short of breaking the bread and set the sacrament back down on the table and then scurried out the side door to go make right with him. I forget, pastor. What Sunday was it that you did that? Do you remember? And I thought to myself, bless your heart. But of course she was right. Lex Semper Accuso. Behold, to obey the Lord is better than worship. I'm sorry. You know, the, the Lord does not say we, we, we might consider reconciling with a brother or sister before we come to the altar. Nor, apparently, is the Almighty interested in our, our, our self-imposed limitations or, or excuses. He straightforwardly says we must reconcile before we come and offer and receive. Notice this commandment about reconciliation is the correlative to the antithesis that comes before it. If you violate the sixth commandment by harboring an angry thought against a brother or sister, then you uphold the same commandment retroactively when you work to put things right with that same person. And therein is the rub. This is why the command sits so heavy upon us. If hatred in our hearts is the equivalent of blood on our hands, then when we come to the table refusing to reconcile with a brother or sister, we approach the altar not as Abel but as Cain. We come to the table not as Abel but as Cain. Will Williman tells the story of a church in Africa that took this exhortation with earnestness. Every week on Sunday morning at the bottom of the steps leading up to the small sanctuary, the pastor would be waiting. The church door is locked. Look around you, the preacher's voice would echo. With whom do you need to reconcile? Go, find your brothers and sisters, obey your Lord, make peace with one another. The table is open, but the doors are locked until you do. And only after he was satisfied that the service of mercy and forgiveness had been offered did the pastor open the church for its service of worship and praise. I told a longer version of Will's story in a sermon several years ago. 
And then Orthodox after worship, a few folks told me they felt challenged by the, by the holiness of such church discipline. More than a few growls to me that the story and the sermon itself struck them as, as hopelessly holier than thou. And not a little harsh. Wow! We can't possibly keep a command like that one, my lay leader Steve exclaimed. Most of the people in this church work in the White House or on the Hill. Anger and antagonism are what butters their bread. But then a man named Rick approached me from the back of the line. I found that scripture passage incredibly comforting, he said, shaking my hand. Comforting? Uh, were you sitting in the same worship service as me? I think it's comforting, he said. But Jesus has to give us instructions for what to do about the relationships we've messed up. It suggests that Jesus doesn't expect us ever to be very good at relationships. I stared at him, suddenly irritated that this introverted actuarial appeared to be on the verge of a far better sermon than I had just preached. (laughs) Think about it, he said. The command is also an acknowledgement that we'll never be more than broken people following Jesus. It's like you said, Pastor, we don't have to be perfect people. We just have to put our trust in grace. I said that? Yeah, that afternoon in your office. And then I remembered. Rick is about my age with two tiny kids. He'd married late and relatively recently. A month or so before that Sunday, he'd asked to meet with me. I don't know how to break the truth to my wife. He told me nervously in my office. It turns out he'd never told her that before they had met, he'd hit bottom with nearly all of his money gambled away. He'd never told her about his addiction. And then they got married. And then the MGM casino went up just across the Potomac River. I drive past it every day just to get to work, he told me. It was just a matter of time. How bad is it? I asked him. It could be worse. Barely. What should I do? Tell her the truth, I said. Confess. Put your trust in grace. Even if she can't show you mercy, even if it kills your marriage, trust that we have a God who loves to raise things from the dead. And notice, notice the direction this command from Christ takes. It's not directed at those with the upper hand. It's not if you have someone again, if you have something against someone, go seek them out and reconcile with them. Which, let's be honest, would really amount to go seek them out and make them pay for what they did to you. The command is not given to those with the upper hand. The command is aimed at those in the position of weakness and transgression. It's if someone has something against you. I mean, think about it. To confront someone and confess and ask for their absolution, that would be mortifying. And the command is really an invitation to die. I mean, first you die to the law, 
That was the, the previous verse where Jesus says, if you've even had an angry thought about a person, you're guilty of murder. First you die to the law, then you die to the other, the person you trespass against, the one on whose mercy you beg. The command takes the form of the law, but, but, but it's, really, it's really about grace. It's about putting your trust in grace. It's about opening up every aspect of your life for the grace of God to be at work. I mean, after all, why do you avoid confronting the people you've sinned against? Because you expect them to deal with you according to the law. If you confess the truth to them, they will make you pay, you assume. With this command to those without the upper hand, Jesus is saying, no. To be a person of faith is to trust the grace of God to be at work in every part of your life. And where it's not, Where the law does kill you, you still trust the God who raises the dead to a new life they don't deserve. I mean, every sin you've sinned against another is a sin Christ has already borne in his body on the tree. Therefore, you are free. Free not to hide. Free to amend what Christ has already atoned. Free to trust the grace of God to be at work in a real way in your everyday life. If you don't step out and trust, uh, otherwise grace will remain a a staid idea about a past act of God in history. This command, it's it's not law. It's it's promise. I remember a few years ago, shortly after I returned from medical leave for stage serious cancer, I was serving communion at our Saturday evening service. And when I placed the host in Shirley's outstretched hands, she grabbed a hold of my hand, smashing the bread inside my fist. And in order to be overheard over the organ, she leaned towards my ear and she said, Wait, I can't. Not until I apologize to you. It's been weighing on me. What? I asked. She's still gripping my hand. All those years ago, she said, when he who must not be named passed that petition around to get the bishop to move you, I got caught up in all the gossip and I signed it. And I tolerated all kinds of terrible insults he and others said about you, and I never uttered a word against it. I was wrong about you, and I was wrong to do that. I'm ashamed of it. I should have apologized earlier, but I thought it would just about kill me for you to know the kind, I'm the kind of person who would do such a thing. I guess I just felt like I couldn't take communion from you one more time without telling you. I'm truly sorry. Behold, to obey the Lord is better than worship. You know, it's, it's hard to bear a grudge when you're holding the body of Christ in your hand. And so I said to Shirley, I forgive you. And then just to, to make it official for her, I made the sign of the cross and I said to her, for Jesus' sake, I declare you are forgiven. And I swear. Just then, she looked like a burden heavier than Lazarus's grave clothes had been lifted off of her, and likely just as astonished as the formerly dead guy in her discovery that, that grace is not an idea. Grace is real and at work in the world. 
There's no better practice to learn to so love, to just so live than to come to the table with your hands outstretched like a beggar before the Lord Jesus, whom you and I killed. As Peter preaches at Pentecost, this man handed over to you according to the plan of God, you crucified. That you means me and you. He has something against us, all of us. And you come to the table and you'll see. Each and every time he will give you more than mercy. With bread that is his body and wine that is his blood, he will say to you, your sins are forgiven. So come to the table so that you might learn to live no less vulnerably in the world than Jesus Christ. Offered to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.